Thank you, um, Andrew, for this introduction. And I will engage with several of your points in, in the course of my talk. Um, <clears throat> to begin with, I will say that I am not looking in this particular instance at the time of Catherine the Great. So the portrait behind my back is slightly less uh, relevant than for many <coughs> other speakers today. It is an interesting feature of um, historiography on the Russian Enlightenment that it is fairly limited to Catherine the Great's time. And um, as Andrew's overview has demonstrated to us, scholars are very cautious about seeing even the seeds of the Enlightenment in the earlier period. Um, I will, in fact, be talking about the period between the reign of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, so the not-so-great period. Um, I will start uh, by saying that, of necessity, the social circles that I will touch upon are incredibly narrow. It's, it's the very, very elite of the Russian society, but it is more educated and more involved with uh, Western ideas than is uh, generally thought, and I hope to be able to demonstrate that today. I'd like to start by talking about the different definitions of the Enlightenment that, that exist in the historiography. Um, especially in Western historiography. Russian historiography has been slower to catch up in terms of um, what we see as the Enlightenment, and which, is which is probably to an extent influenced by the fact that the word Enlightenment in Russian, persvishenie, is broadly analogous to education. And often when people talk of the Enlightenment in Russia in the 18th century, they focus on the institutions of education rather than uh, intellectual movements and um, self-education as well as uh, travels to the West. Russian histori historiography traditionally looks at the Enlightenment uh, in the light of the French Enlightenment, uh, the anti-clerical movement that is empirical and in its most radical forms materialistic, um, the one that emphasises Newtonian science above all as a way of knowing the world and that denies religion a, um, val a validity of perspective on the world. Um, it is, however, interesting to, to see that in the past 30 years or so, we have, uh, and uh, Roy Porter's uh, and Mikko Stage's um, collection has been instrumental in that, we have seen a... Uh, broadening of, of national categories of, of the Enlightenment. And we have seen that not everywhere is the Enlightenment opposed to religion. Uh, in England, the traditional view is uh, that of a more deistic um, and natural uh, theological, physical approach. In Germany, pietism played a very important role, and certainly the German Enlightenment, um, as Mark Reif, among others, has demonstrated, has uh, showed, has had an, an enormous influence on the early Enlightenment in Russia. Another thing that's interesting to note is the use of the Russian Enlightenment rather than the Enlightenment in Russia in, in the title of this conference. And this is another important issue that we can discuss the Enlightenment in the national context in two distinct ways. We can talk about the Enlightenment as a general movement and the forms it takes in different countries, or we can talk about specifically national enlightenment. And, and this is, I believe, what Andrew was getting at by, by 
posing this question. Um, since the question is, was there a Russian Enlightenment, I will focus on the more national uh, features of the movement in Russia, and I will also be using Russian language sources from the period. Um, it is important to know that although <coughs> printing in Russia in the 18th century was um, a slow affair and wasn't um, mass printing by any stretch, it wasn't as small in terms of the proportion of books to the amount of readers. So readers were still well supplied with books. And at the same time, Western books were actually fairly available in Russia at the time. Uh, taking a slightly later period in the 1750s uh, and 1760s, the works of the philosophers, the, the encyclopedia, was freely available in St. Petersburg. The encyclopedia was sold at um, the Academy of Sciences bookshop for something in, in, in the area of two rubles, um, which I'm not going to try to convert into more modern um, categories. Suffice it to say that, Kant, uh, that uh, Antioch Cantonese translation of uh, Fontenelle's Dialogues on the Priority of Worlds uh, fetched at least 10 times as much, uh, because it was quite rare at that stage, having been published uh, 10 or 20 years prior. So, as I've said before, um, the Enlightenment of Russia is traditionally seen as starting with Catherine II. And I suspect to a large extent it is because historiography of, Russia, of the Russian Enlightenment has focused on the French Enlightenment and Catherine's links with the philosophers um, fall well into that kind of narrative. It is, however, interesting to note that observations on the Enlightenment in Russia and the uh, rise of sciences and arts in Russia in eulogies to uh, empresses appear in eulogies to the Empress Anna Ivanovna, who uh, reigned in the 1730s, and Elizabeth I, who reigned in the 1740s and 1750s. Which is to say that the rhetoric of Enlightenment, the rhetoric of raising Russia from its barbarous roots, and I'm quoting one of the sermons in, in using the word barbarous, has been applied by Russians themselves, not just to Catherine II, but to her predecessors as well. And as um, Paul Dukes, in his essay on the Russian Enlightenment in Roy Porter's collection, says, the, applica the applicability to Catherine of observations on her less distinguished predecessor, uh, Elizabeth I in this case, reinforces the thought that the Russian Enlightenment was by no means the creation of one monarch and was already well underway before 1762. The Elizabethan age marked in its books, periodicals and plays a transition from the practical emphasis of Peter's time to the more philosophical concerns of Catherine's. Broadly, I agree with this statement, but I, I, am, I am not convinced about the practical emphasis uh, and the shift from a practical emphasis to a more philosophical approach as a mark of the Enlightenment. And this is where uh, I really approach my topic, that of science and, and that of religion. The, for, the for the thinkers of the Enlightenment, science was first and foremost a practical exercise. The role of science in the Enlightenment is to ameliorate the human condition and to improve uh, the lives of people everywhere. The encyclopedia itself is a compendium of practical knowledge. Um, the numerous 
copper plate engravings are mostly um, mostly about technology and how science can be applied in practice. <coughs> this is uh, this means that, for example, the early influence of um, Schumacher, that, 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 who was the chancellor of the head of the chancellery of the Academy of Sciences, uh, founded in 1725-1726, who insisted um, in many ways on driving the academy, especially uh, the way this has been represented in traditional historiography, f away from more abstract, more theoretical studies to more practical roles, actually suggests that in some ways he was a precursor, if not a participant, in the Enlightenment movement. The question of science and religion is one that is to this day fraught with uh, controversies, and certainly the conflict narrative, the narrative that science is diametrically opposed to religion, that there can be no union between science and religion, is a child of the late Enlightenment in many ways. Um, the myth, for example, of Galileo's persecution was uh, very much promoted by um, Enlightenment thinkers. In fact, early modern science, especially science before the Enlightenment, was seen, see, saw itself as complementary to religion, not in opposition to, to it, uh, which shows us that science does not have to be um, something that enters into conflict with religion. And um, this, for example, is seen in the Royal Society, um, which established lectures to prove um, that science can be used to glorify God to quote uh, Stephen Chapin on the scientific revolution, regularities were to be observed in nature and might even be mathematically expressed, yet it was to be understood that all such regularities <laughs> were subject to God's pleasure. It should be understood that stones fell downward at 32 feet per second squared, God willing. <laughs> Science was not then, and it isn't now, value-free, uh, and it aspired to explain the world as God's creation, and the pantheist and atheist later movements were marginal at best in, the early mo in, in early modern science. The Enlightenment saw the development of this trend of, of, of thinking in science as well as in, uh, in natural science as well as in philosophy, I should say. And science itself came to be respected by philosophers not simply for its result but as a way of thinking. It offered the prospect of enlightenment through the correction of past error, and especially through its power to override superstition, as John Hedley Brooke, one of the leading scholars of science and religion, tells us. Uh, in Russian historiography, science has traditionally been seen as a march of progress, um, and this view hasn't really been corrected um, up until now. Uh, and for both Soviet and uh, imperial scholars, such as Pekarsky, for example, the conflict narrative is very important. Um, they seek out particular episodes in which the Orthodox Church was seen to persecute scientists and pounce uh, on them with some glee. As I hope to show today, um, many of those episodes were not about religious opposition to scientific thinking and were in fact sometimes uh, power struggles and, and sometimes simply accidents. And this explains why for Pekarsky and for uh, Rykov, a great scholar of the history of heliocentrism in Russia, um, 
the question of why did the church not actually persecute the scientists or the people who wrote about science is an important one. Sometimes books were censored rather than banned. Uh, outright bans are very, very rare in the 18th century in Russia. No one in the entire period from the Petrine times to uh, the beginning of Catherine II's reign, no one has ever suffered for his or her um, scientific beliefs. Most that they earned was a stern rebuke from um, the church, which in the case of the greatest Russian scientist of the period, uh, Mihailo Lomonosov, he returned with gusto. <laughs> One thing that's important to understand about the 18th century in Russia is the role of the Orthodox Church. And it's very tempting to conflate the view of the Orthodox Church in Russia in the period with the view of the Catholic Church, especially as expressed by the philosophers themselves. But the Catholic Church was an entrenched institution that had very, a very strong tradition of independence. The Orthodox Church in Russia, in fact, came under three distinct types of pressure. And the most important type of pressure was from the state, which successfully subjugated the church to its interest and especially established a ministry for religion. Uh, other pressures included pressures from the old believers, so a schism that occurred uh, 50 years prior to Peter I. And finally, Protestant influences in the um, Russian Orthodox Church were, were a very important problem uh, for many theologians. Science wasn't really on their radar. They don't really talk that much about science. And whenever scholars, uh, whether distinguished uh, scholars like Pekarsky or Rykov or um, slightly less scrupulous uh, Soviet historians try to find examples of, of church persecution of sciences, they have to fall back on the same examples over and over again. There's a handful of them, and I will uh, touch on them now. The Academy of Sciences was established uh, after Peter I's death, and quickly began popularizing efforts uh, within the Russian elites. It held a series of uh, public lectures, and the first public lecture was, in fact, a debate uh, on the system of the world, Copernican versus Ptolemyan. It is important to understand that uh, the idea of the Copernican universe is one that the Russian Orthodox Church had some big problems with. Most of the cases of censorship that we detect are, in fact, about the ideas of the plurality of worlds, which stems directly from the Copernican ideas or the Copernicans' ideas themselves. Um, the one example, um, the other thing is that, as Andrew has mentioned, there were, in fact, three presses in um, Russia in, in the first half of the 18th century. One at the uh, Synod in Moscow, one at the Academy of Sciences, the other one at the Senate, which uh, printed laws. The one at the Academy of Sciences was tasked with printing everything that was not concerned with religion. This was not codified until 1747, when the Charter for the Academy of Sciences was established, but this was the broad principle that was, in fact, followed uh, throughout the period. However, um, in terms of law, the Synod, until 1747, had the power to censor scientific works. Except that to exercise that power, they had to know what the press was printing. And the only cases we know of, of uh, the church banning the publication of a particular 
work is when the Academy of Sciences came to the church to ask them whether it would be fine to print it. This is what happened, for example, with the Russian translation of uh, the astronomers de Lille's exposition of the Copernican system, when the French translation was in fact published by the Academy of Sciences and circulated freely. For the Russian translation, Schumacher, who saw, as uh, Michael Gordon and Simon Burrett have demonstrated, it as his role to smooth the tensions between the newly imported scientific academy and the more traditional elements of the Russian society, actually asked the Synod whether the book can be published. The Synod said no. Uh, a similar story is with the publication of Fontenelle's Dialogues on the Priority of Worlds, one of the most important scientific popular books in um, the history of the 17th and 18th centuries, in the history of early modern science. Antioch Cantemir, uh, the son of uh, the former Moldovan prince and the future ambassador to England, made a translation between 1728 and 1730 of the book. He sent the manuscript to Schumacher, asking him whether the book can be printed. Schumacher said that he will have to check with the secular Ostermann, uh, the powerful chancellor at the court of Anna Ioannovna, and uh, religious authorities. Religious authorities at the time were represented by the head of the Synod, Feofan Prokopovich, an incredibly well-learned, um, scientifically-minded, and open-minded as well, um, churchman, at least by the standards of the time. The questions of intoleration in the Russian Orthodox Church in that period were again directed against old believers and some Lutheran influences rather than science. The book, Schumacher said that he will check with the authorities, and all we know is that the book wasn't printed. We don't know whether the authorities actually forbid it or not. Presumably there was some opposition or it would have been printed immediately. It is valuable at this stage to mention uh, Mark Raev's idea of the, of the 17th century Europe in 18th century Russia, where the idea is that uh, in the early part of the century, the intellectual milieu was dominated by German immigrants who themselves grew up in the 17th century, in the pre-Enlightenment era. And Schumacher was one of them. And his cautious approach to questions of heliocentrism may in fact have been influenced, and this is something that that, that, uh, I intend to follow up on in the future, may in fact have been influenced by the fact that he thought it would be a problem. Whether the church thought it would be a problem is an entirely different matter given that in 1724, six years before uh, the translation of uh, Fontenelle appeared in manuscript, in 1724, a similar book on the Plurality of Worlds was published in Moscow in a large edition. And it it seems, it is hard to imagine that the church changed its position in uh, the four or six years that passed in that time. The translation by Cantemir wasn't published in 1740, but in 1740 it was in fact published. In 1738, Cantemir sent the manuscript to Schumacher again. Uh, It has been assumed by historians that the manuscript remained in Moscow and that Schumacher tried to hide it so that does not to uh, arise suspicions in the church. In fact, Cantemir, as the footnotes to the edition demonstrate, continued to work on the translation until, until at least 1735, and he was certainly very busy uh, being the ambassador to England and then France. So the delay in publication <laughs> isn't necessarily due to religious opposition. 
After the death of Anna Ivanovna, um, Pekarsky, for example, detects a strong anti-scientific strand in uh, the clergy. And one example he uses is Ambrosi Yushkevich's, um, a, a bishop, sermon on the um, birthday of Elizabeth I, where he says that the Germans um, have attacked piety and uh, the Orthodox faith under the pretext of destroying superstition. And this seems to us as a, as a, as a statement that falls squarely in the uh, science versus religion narrative, because uh, Vyshkevich says that um, they are fighting against superstition, but in fact they're fighting against the church. In fact, this is a purely political statement where he continues that the reason they did this um, was to destroy orthodoxy in Russia and to install a Protestant system in the country. So this isn't an anti-scientific statement. In fact, a few paragraphs earlier in the sermon, he praises Peter I for lifting Russia, which was, or the Russian people, who were dark in sciences and unenlightened and spending a great sum of money to find learned people um, sent his subjects uh, for sciences and other experiences to foreign countries, tried to establish uh, places of learning and uh, supplied them with wise teachers. So again, there is no opposition to actual scientific learning by itself. In this, the church follows the, uh, as uh, Victor Jevolf has, has demonstrated, is one of the ways for the state to establish its, its mythology uh, of an enlightening, uh, an enlightening state. And the, so is the academy. So, in fact, the Academy of Sciences and the Synod are the two ministries, one for science and one for religion. And in the 1740s in particular, whenever conflict conflicts flared up between the two, they were usually smoothed by the state. Uh, and the conflicts, um, the two most famous conflicts are an edition of a tr uh, Pope's essay on man that was um, forbidden by the Synod after it was sent to the Synod for approbation, which it didn't have to be, where the Synod objected to heliocentric propositions in the text. Shuvaov, the um, patron of the translator, sent the <coughs> translation to a bishop in the Russian church who corrected the translation, um, <coughs> except that he corrected parts that weren't necessarily the ones underlined by the synod. So some of the parts that the synod found objectionable Ambrosi didn't correct, and in fact he did correct some parts where the translator did depart from the text. One of these is replacing the word uh, wolf with the word um, animal, zvig, uh, which in um, Pope's original is bear. So pre pre presumably the zvig is there for reasons of cadence, uh, rather than to uh, show that Tsarist can't wear wolf skins, which would be strange. <laughs> a strange objection. As uh, Kuiper has shown, Pope uh, Popovsky, the translator of Pope, actually edits the text himself 
to Christianise it, to bring it closer to the Orthodox faith. And the, 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 the story of the censorship, as Tsapina demonstrates, is more about control over the, the Moscow University Press, the newly established Moscow University Press, where the Synod wanted to participate in the censorship discussion rather than take over the censorship discussion. Other examples of censorship in, in the 1740s include, for example, a translation of the 106th Psalm by uh, Alexander Sumarokov, where Sumarokov introduces questions of um, the infinity of the worlds and the plurality of worlds into the psalm. He is uh, denounced to the Synod by his fellow poet Tretikovsky. And what has, been what, what has been used as an example of church censorship is in fact a part of the war of poets that, that uh, forms an important uh, element in the 1740s and 1750s in the public sphere in the 1740s and 1750s in Russia. I do believe I am starting to run out of time. Well, we want to have some time for questions. So, uh. And um, I will say that religious opposition to scientific progress in the West is a consequence of the Church's strong and independent position in the previous years. Uh, and the Church resists, as an entrenched establishment, a new threat <coughs> as it sees in the new sciences. Um, and we can see similar processes in the Enlightenment in Spain, for example, where at an early stage in the 1720s and 1730s, there was a movement against the Church that was swiftly squashed, and new philosophies very much suspect. In Russia, the Church's involvement in censorship or attempts to influence scientific discourse are sporadic, unsystematic, very occasional, and absolutely inefficient. In the case of Tretiakovsky's denunciation of Sumarokov to the Synod, the Synod complains and nothing happens. With Popovsky, the translation is still published and Popovsky manages to print the edited lines in the larger type so that everyone knows that they have actually been edited. To me, it seems that the conflict between science and religion in Russia in the period is a lot more about the church feeling left behind in, in the progress of the state. And to quote uh, another sermon from 1756, the scientists do not want to leave anything out that cannot be understood by them through their reason, which is where both naturalists, or uh, that is to say Spinozists, atheists uh, and uh, people of other opinions hateful to God and the souls of pious people come from. The idea here, of course, is that um, they're not opposing scientific discourse. They're not opposing scientific research. They're just saying, we want to participate in this intellectual discourse. And to, um, I will finish with a quote from Platon Levshin's uh, 1765 short introduction to Orthodox theology uh, that was written for uh, the Prince Paul the future uh, Emperor Paul I. It's a very interesting book, in fact, and it starts as an introduction to Orthodox theology with the words, the first thing man needs to learn about 
is man himself. So it's a very Lockean position expressed in a textbook of Orthodox theology. But in this case, uh, I, I will quote from the preface, where Platon complains that, especially in these times, when people prefer learning secular sciences to the saving grace of uh, God's law, which is the beginning of all wisdom, when everyone involves themselves in the sciences strange and diverse and don't strengthen their hearts with um, spiritual guidance. And this is the reason that so many Christians, in so many Christians we can see uh, such perverse opinions. Platon is not arguing against science. He is resigned, in fact, to the existence of science, to the existence of secular learning, to the fact that his readers would rather send their children to learn about secular sciences. And he's a little perplexed about secular sciences as well. I, I, the strange and diverse secular sciences is something that he doesn't want to argue against, but he wants orthodox faith to serve as guidance to avoid the gravest sins that science can lead into, such as Spinozism and atheism.